Ladies and gentlemen, bonus editions of Center Stand. I know it's what you were asking for last Christmas, and it's the middle of the summer now, but we're here to deliver. A little bit late. What can I say? It's a microchip thing. I want to... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm really excited about chatting with a few of the people. We're uh, kind of bouncing back into last season. We asked... Um, the participants from Center Stand uh, who would like to chat a little bit more to put their hands up. And I tell you what, we had so many people put their hands up. We're actually going to do two of these uh, kind of quick shot wrap up shows. So our first guests uh, coming up in the first half of the two wrap up shows, Mark Sheffield is going to be joining us. Uh, Tony Altieri from uh, NPA, Elisa Clickager, uh, Wendy Crockett. That's our first. So enjoy these quick interviews coming up right here on the wrap up for Center Stand season two. Mark Sheffield is the strategic advisor at Woods Indian Motorcycle. Uh, Mark and I have been here in Texas for a long time. We've worked around each other. We've worked together. And uh, Mark, congratulations on making it to your 50th year on this planet. I appreciate it. You know, I'm I still, my memory is kind of seized up when you were talking about having shackles in your living room. Well, you know, it's uh, it's it's a visual. It's, I like to put that sort of thing out. That's one of the reasons we uh, keep it a podcast. <laughs> uh, is uh, so that people don't actually have to see that they can use their imagination. So um, for our, uh, we're going to be doing these uh, uh, quick interviews. We're going to be spending a few minutes with uh, five, five different people, starting off with Mark here. And with Mark, um, give us just a, a brief um, overview of your current role. So currently I am associated with Woods Cycle Country slash Woods Indian Motorcycle in New Braunfels. I facilitate some Spader uh, 20 groups in the Marine, RV and power sports space. I work with a few OEMs on the backside, ones who would prefer to not be publicly affiliated with me. And I take on some other projects in the industry as, uh, as they align with what I see to be my limited skill set. I'd like to compare that list someday because I'm pretty sure that the list of OEMs who don't want to work with me is longer. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the uh, 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 the the uh, blog post you wrote was called "Embracing Change," and those of you who want to read the entire blog post, you can see that at ContinueTheRide.com. Um, but uh, embracing change, and it was reflective of obviously, you know, 2022. We're not going to beat that drum anymore. Um, but um, you really focused in on the digital age and this new evolution uh, that the pandemic has forced power sports into. And it's and it's. I agree with you that it's a deflection point in power sports. That that our business is going to fundamentally change. Um, and you hit on a few different things, um, and I'd like to just kind of um, go through that real quick. And one of your points is that uh, old school is out. Old school has closed. It's over. And, um, uh, and if you are still stuck in an old school state of mind, you're going to lose. Can you just quickly expand on that? You know, I think really the key thing is that, you know, and and. Primarily, when we talk about dealerships, we talk about the sales department. But you know, let's not forget that the service and the parts department are just as, if not more important. Maybe they don't generate all the revenues, but uh, I hate to forget about those other departments. But it is usually about sales. And mm -hmm. you know, you think about how salespeople have always been taught that you know you've got to get the customer on the phone. And I think really the the thing that highlights this the most is that when I shop a lot of dealers, uh, I will send a lead into that dealership and I'll, I'll usually have three or four questions and I just want to see how they respond to that. And, and they're usually pointed questions. They're usually good. They're not heavily detailed. Mm -hmm. And when you get that first response back from the dealership and it's like, they don't even, they don't, don't even respond to your questions. It's just like, here's my phone number. Give me a call. Right. And, you know, that's just that that is so 19th century at this point in time. So, I mean, you might as well just take the Mayflower to work at that point in time because you haven't adapted to the 21st century. And the reality is if you're leaning on your, you know, your door swing counter and you're ignoring texts and emails, you are 
pretty much on your way to being out of business these days. Is that right? Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that, that, you know, the industry continues to evolve. Um, you know, we're going to be selling new products over the next five to 10 years. The electrification, whether you like it or not, it's, it's going to happen. It's going to come. And, you know, the dealers that are changing to the new economic reality are going to be the ones who are going to be here for the long time. And I think that in the future, I think that there's going to be two tranches of dealers that continue to be really successful. And that's going to be the really large dealers who have multiple brands. Um, they have a good digital ad, ad budget. They have people that understand that real estate. Mm -hmm. And I think that some of the smaller dealers who are very niche, um, maybe offer specialized products, a concierge level of customer service. I think they're going to do good. It's the guys in the middle and the girls in the middle that are going to get squeezed out of this. And, you know, I think one of the things that's been consistent in business is the old 80-20 rule, right? 20% of your um, uh, business creates 80% of your profit or, uh, let's see, was it 20% of your dealers creates 80% uh, of your business? Or what's the 80-20 rule as you see it, Mark? You know, in this industry, I don't know that the 80-20 rule is fully applicable and and what you would state in that is that 20 percent of your customers provide 80 percent of your revenues you can you can apply it in a lot of different ways and and i think that you know in this industry you probably are closer to a 40 60 rule where 40 percent mm -hmm. of your customers provide 60 percent of your revenues it's uh it's probably not that predicated on on a small number of customers now you if you wanted to apply the 80 20 rule to um oh yeah then yeah. then you know, maybe you could say in the service department that 20% of our customers create 80% of our problems. That would probably be, better. <laughs> it would be a, a better way to put it. <laughs> That's fair. So um, the that that idea that uh, some of the folks in the middle may be surprised by dealing with this. I think one of your uh, points on your blog posts is that as a owner or general manager, you may be more senior in age, but you can't be necessarily senior in the way that you look at business. And you have to find your own personal weakness and augment it with um, new staff and people who have the technical capabilities, right? Yeah, we have at, at Woods, we have an employee internet site that's just got some documents and things on there. and. You know, one of the things I started doing 15 years ago was when I heard something that was really funny or a catchphrase that was really good, um, I would log those on there and put the date down. And, and there's a there's a bunch of stupid stuff on there that people have said over the years. But one of the ones that I still really fall back on all the time, um, and I think this quote came from Gregory House on, on the House MD show, if I remember correctly. And it said, you know, I don't need a bunch of managers who think like I do to tell me what I already know. And I, I just think that that's a very powerful statement that people mm -hmm. tend to, you know, when you interview someone uh, for the dealership, uh, you know, the people that interview, they get really comfortable with people that, you know, can tell them exactly what they want to hear and, and, and think the same way that they do. And I think um, you're a lot better to find people who are willing to challenge you and, and that you know, when you look at some of the top management teams in the industry, I mean, they are made up of very diverse people. You know, you've got men, women, younger, older, you know, writers, sometimes people from outside of the industry. And I think you just need that very diverse team in order to be successful in the current climate. And the current climate has also called for a level of efficiency that we haven't really been forced into in the modern era, right? So we have fewer employees that are are doing more can you speak a little bit maybe not ne just necessarily to uh woods the dealership that you're directly connected to but maybe some of the 20 groups you're involved with how are dealers um you know sort of manifesting that e efficiency you know spader really uh tries not to to give away all their proprietary information and and so i think there there is one key metric and i tell dealers this all the time if they're i'll ask a dealer i say you know if, if you could only look at one metric for your deal for your business what would it be and you know for most of them it's profitability or net profit along or something along those lines mm -hmm. and for me 
the most important metric in the industry for years now as being the gross profit per employee. And you just take your gross profit during the course of the year. This is before expenses and before all that other stuff. Take your total number of employees, just average it out over the course of 12 months and see how much gross profit per employee you're generating. And that ultimately is a measure of the efficiency of the machine. And it's, you know, there's three things that impact that. You know, if you want to increase that number, you can sell more product, you can increase your margin, or you can reduce your employees. I mean, it's a very, very simple calculation. But I can tell you, after having worked with hundreds of dealers, um, that is the only number that I need to look at for a brand new dealership to tell me how their machine is working. And the pandemic has really forced a lot of dealers um, into understanding that they can achieve a lot more with a lot less. And I, I'm not talking about working employees to the bone either, because ultimately, if you really understand this metric, what you get to is a point where when the machine is very efficient, is that you can you can pay your employees way better than market rates, and yet the business can still take more money to the bottom line. And, you know, so it's it's a very fine line, though. You don't want to push employees to the to the point where they break. Um, but there there is a happy medium where dealership can be very profitable. Um, we can do a good job of paying our employees well. The dealership can make a very reasonable return on their investment and the risk that exists in in operating a business in this industry or or any industry for that means, and it, it's just a very interesting metric because it scales across industries, across from the smallest to the largest businesses, and it's just one that I've really focused on, and I think it's one one that over the last year and a half dealers have come to truly understand that it is a meaningful metric. And that's an awesome insight. So if somebody listening is um, looking to get to work at a dealership, it's incumbent on them to show that efficiency on the way in, i.e. multiple different skill sets or the ability to learn, uh, expressing the desire to learn areas that you might not be as uh, familiar with. Is that right? Is that how to get hired now by a, by a dealer? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a couple of things. One is that as an industry, we've struggled to find enough people. Um, and some of that comes because we haven't had the money to hire the talent that we really wanted in this industry. And two, a lot of dealerships haven't been able to present a career path to employees. And so, you know, you focus on, you know, this this gross profit per employee is one side of the metric is that if we can improve this number, we can start paying better than market wages. We're going to attract some really good talent. And the other side of that is how can dealers generate a career path? You know, how can instead of the only time that management sits down with an employee is when someone makes a mistake and they're and they're getting chastised for that or they're getting fired you know how can we move to a more proactive you know we're going to sit down every three months or six months and talk about your wins and your losses and you know the opportunities that exist in this dealership for you to grow with us and you know how can we keep moving people forward and that's going to be the thing that differentiates the really successful dealers going forward is and and that's going to be what means some dealers are able to attract talent while others can't and it's going to be because they offer things that we haven't traditionally been able to offer in, in this industry i have been lucky to uh meet some people at the top of the MotoGP racing world. And I had a conversation with an Italian manager once who basically expressed that if a team focuses all its energy on, on the mechanics, they will lose. That the humanity of the team is as important, if not more so, to maintain. And I think that's something that every um, dealership has to take um, to heart. So I want to thank Mark Sheffield for joining us. Mark is an Army veteran. Uh, he works at uh, Woods Indian Motorcycle. He also facilitates a lot of work at uh, for Spader Business Management. I'll give you a plug for your website. That is markjsheffield.com. Um, so you can connect with Mark there if you'd like to uh, dig in some more of this knowledge. Definitely visit his blog post at continuetheride.com. Mark, thanks for joining us for the first segment on this wrap-up. Good talking to you. You have a great week. Rock on, buddy. See you, buddy.
next guest from National Power Sports Auction. Happy to have him back is uh, Tony Altieri. Uh, Tony, thanks for spending a few minutes with us on what I'm going to call our 38 special, five shots. Boom, 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 right? Uh, and um, we wanted to revisit with you um, in your episode of Center Stand, we talked about sort of the dearth of inventory, both new and used, uh, and the and the challenges that is faced in the power sports community, right? Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, it was a pretty lively discussion, but one I thoroughly enjoyed, that's for sure. Well, I think we hit on some key points there. That was a fairly recent discussion, so I encourage our listeners to go back and listen to Season 2, Episode 9. Um, National Power Sports Auction has a, has a major overview uh, in the world of motorsports uh, or motor, uh, motorcycles and power sports uh, in a way that very few other brands do. So um, being around NPA and understanding the data they can produce and the number of trans- transactions is, is truly incredible. But parallel to that is the number of dealers that you work with. And one of the things I really want to uh, focus in on on our bonus episode here is employment opportunities in power sports. Um, Tony, how many how many employees does NPA um, have? Yeah, I think across the 10 locations, um, obviously, the majority of our staff is either sales or operations focused. I want to say we're right around 300, maybe 350. And that is uh, that's that's a big number in power sports, but I would suspect Mark Sheffield, our, our past guest, spoke to um, sort of gross revenue divided by the number of employees as a key factor in the profitability of a company. I would suspect that NPA has gotten really good at being very efficient with their yeah. staff. Yeah, no, you're you're spot on. It's one of the things that we've done. Uh, you know the. Guys a lot smarter than me, Cliff Clifford and the guys that founded this company um, really did it with the aspect of staying lean. If you think about a, you know, a typical power sports dealership, uh, you go to a motorcycle dealer, there's not the abundance of folks you would typically see compared to like, a, you know, a, a car dealership. Um, you're used to running lean because you're running smaller vo- uh, volumes, um, your margins are much tighter. And so to your point, you have to be more efficient. And uh, Cliff kind of took the spirit of that in his development of this company. And it's something that we've always kind of had in the back of our minds is that folks need to be cross-trained to do other jobs. And so um, to your point, um, we are as lean and mean as we've ever been. And with the the current environment and the things that are happening kind of, you know, in our economy today, um, we've gotten even leaner and more efficient. Uh, so, you know, it's not for looking for folks or trying to expand. But um, as we all know, like our industry, it's it's tough to get folks from outside of our world to come in and play ball with us and, and mm-hmm. to work and understand all the nuances that are involved in power sports. And so to that point, if somebody uh, I want to speak to our audience uh, that uh, member that may be listening and is looking to get into power sports and looking for that sort of insight, what is it that in, in your mind, uh, what is it that's like a key uh, factor for a good power sports employee? Yeah, so I think I think uh, just like we we look for in customers, right? Um, there's this certain level of passion that it's that's involved in the industry, and it's really echoed through the manufacturers, the lenders, the dealers, everyone, included NPA, that the people that work here are also people that ride. And it doesn't mean that you have to be uh, a, a person that's been riding for years and years and you started when you were a little kid. It just means that there has to be a certain level of interest and passion involved with it because, you know, for for a lot of comparative industries and with what's happening, again, economically with wages and trying to get people, the power sports industry uh, has really struggled to to attract new entrance into it. So I think I think the first thing would be if you've got an itch for learning more, if you've ever been interested in riding a Harley or hopping in a side by side or, you know, cruising down the back dirt roads on a dirt bike, like that that's the first piece is being interested or passionate about about the sport. 
Um, the second thing I think would be that that's really helpful is having some general mechanical knowledge, right? All of us are kind of gearheads at heart. That That's part of the passion piece of it, but mm -hmm. that's also helpful. And then the understanding of how to connect with people, I think, is another big thing. You know, you don't have to turn wrenches to be in power sports, but, you know, we are a very, very communal industry uh, where um, a lot of times it feels like a big high school, right? You know somebody, Robert, that I know and they can tell you about me and I can tell you about them. So understanding the, 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 the dynamics behind that, being able to navigate uh, and work with people is extremely important in power sports. And when I compare it to you know, the other verticals that I've worked in, whether it's been corporate banking or in the auto industry, um, this really is a tight-knit community. And you find out really, really quick when you enter it if it's the right fit for you or not. So that ability to connect with people, to understand, to have empathy, to work hard, to realize that your reach goes beyond the person that you're talking to because it is such a small community, th that's vital to have success in our industry. And I think uh, one key thing in our industry for for the younger folks or somebody new to power sports is you can't you can't BS power sports people. I mean, we we yeah. smell it out, right? I mean, there's Absolutely. there's a level like I can't I can't tell you stories about fishing. I don't fish. I don't know the right words to use. I don't you know that sort of thing. So so you can smell that. Um, you know, through a conversation. So don't BS your way through. If you don't know, it's cool to say you don't know. And then and then you want to learn. So to that point, if you're a young person and maybe you are coming at this from a level of enthusiasm and you think it's going to be awesome to, you know, kick up your heels in a motorcycle dealership every single day, the reality is it's a lot of hard work and you have to bring with it other skill sets, right? So um, what are some of the key skill sets you think are, you know, as, as you have an overview over many different dealers and have had, had conversations with many dealer principals and GMs and that sort of thing, what is the sort of uh, broader skill set that, that a good employee is going to bring in to make a fundamental difference in 2021? Yeah, I think the point that you brought up um, which can probably be encapsulated with the term authenticity, right? Mm -hmm. So if someone's honest and authentic, I think that is one of the biggest things that employers look for in folks in our industry. Because to your point, um, if you're fake or you're trying to, uh, what's the word that they use the term, uh, fake it till you make it, you're mm -hmm. going to get sniffed out real, real quick in our industry. Everybody knows everyone and we can spot a phony really, really quick. So being honest with your level of proficiency, how much you ride or you don't ride, how much you don't know about things, that's extremely important. Like I said earlier, you don't have to be a total gearhead to work in the industry, but you, ne you need to be willing to learn and understand why folks are so passionate about what we do. And that's something that can develop over time. For me personally, I didn't come to this industry um, someone who had been writing my whole life. I was a sports guy, and so my exposure to power sports uh, at the level that it is now was really developed over the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. But it's something that I've adapted to and I've embraced. And so if, you, if you're looking to get into it and you think, hey, this would be kind of a cool gig, I'd be interested in working in a dealership, you know, I'd like to go work for an OEM or for a marketing firm that deals in this, this industry, one, be authentic, be accountable, right? So be, be accountable to show up, to be on time, to work, to learn those things, um, and then be adaptable. Things change so quickly in our industry in terms of what's hot, what's not, what the buzzwords are, how things are changing. Um, you work with so many different people if you're working at a dealership. You could be working with customers, lenders, OEMs. And so you need to be able to take all of the different inputs and apply it to what you're doing. But, um, you know, again, you don't need to have a, a, a master's degree in psychology. You don't need to be an economics major who graduated from an Ivy League school. You have to be willing to be, uh, like I said, accountable. You have to be pliable and you have to be able to, to work with a number of different folks because we touch so many different types of people. The guy that rides a Harley is completely different than the kid that rides a, a, a CRF 250. So you have to be able to work with different types of folks and you have to be willing to connect and adapt to those different environments. I think that's one of the fundamental draws of power sports. So let's flip the coin to the other side. Now I'm a dealer, right? I got all these great employees 
And as you pointed out, we're having trouble bringing employees in. So retention is critical. As you run a more and more efficient business, you effectively have more keystones in your business and the loss of any one employee can really hurt a dealership. Are you seeing where dealers are having to up their salaries or address quality of life versus total man hours or do things like pay for training? What are what are dealer principals doing to retain these good employees? Yeah, I think you hit on a couple of them right there. I think advancement is a big thing right now um, with so much opportunity available in the workplace. Um, the worker has more power to be able to choose what their their career path is probably more than I've, I've seen in my short working career. Um, so, so that means you have to be able to show people not only the opportunity that exists in front of them today, but the path that you can lay out that for them at the dealership. Um, and whether that means starting on the sales floor or you know back in the shop, understanding that you can be a general sales manager, you can be a service writer, you can run the service department, you can be a general manager and showing them the path to that in your dealership, providing them with growth and opportunity. A lot of folks get focused on uh, paying people more money, and that's great for short term, but to get the hooks in, to make somebody feel like, hey, not only do I care about making sure you can pay your bills, but I want you to grow with us as we get more proficient. I think more and more dealers are investing in that career track. And to your point, that means sending folks off to schools, to getting certifications, uh, to getting them trained up to be able to take on more capacity, getting them cross-trained in other areas. A lot of times we hear stories from dealers where they were taking people out of the service bays and putting them on the showroom floor because they had the technical knowledge, they could speak to the passion that customers had, but they mm -hmm. had a bent for sales. So being able to identify and cross-train is extremely important, especially as things get more uh, competitive in the job market. And in the current circumstances, you know, where you've got the availability for a worker to choose to go to work, maybe not, maybe they choose to go work in a brand new industry that, uh, uh, didn't exist 10 years ago. I think that's right. another big thing, right, is the fact that the, the draw for power sports traditionally was this exciting, fun industry with all of the new technology and verticals that have emerged here in the last 10 or 15 years, even outside of power sports, just in general, there's a lot of fun, cool, amazing new industries that young folks are attracted to. So, so that lever that we were able to lean on for a very long time, we're not able to do that as consistently as, we, as we've done before. So the traditional ways of identifying a career path offering people the incentive to have training and better themselves as a way for, for dealers to not only attract people, but then keep them in the dealership. So while we're talking about new technology, the last quick subject I wanna hit with you here is some of the new brands that have made an impact in our industry. And uh, you know, being that you deal exclusively in um, uh, used or repoed that kind of uh, uh, product out there. Uh, there are new brands that are doing things in a slightly different way that are changing the game, changing the conversation. Some One of the earliest new brands, if that makes sense, is Can-Am that has fundamentally um, uh, re-engineered uh, what a power sports customer is. And when that product first came in, I'll be, I'll admit, I was one of the first people to go, well, that's not really a motorcycle, but it didn't take me very long to realize that product's keeping people in motorcycling uh, and introducing new people into power sports that no other product on the market at the time possibly could have. But I'm thinking of brands like, uh, you know, Zero, Energica on the electric side, um, CSC, which is running things in a in a very different uh, consumer direct uh, manner. Royal Enfield um, has come in and obviously they're a huge powerhouse on an international level, but, but they're really making some interesting waves. Um, talk to us a little bit about how some of these new brands are um, coming in and making some inroads in some of the established brands out there. Yeah, no, I think you hit on some key points. One would be the the longevity side of things is creating products uh, that keep people in power sports engaged and transitioning to whatever that new thing is. Uh, basically elongating how long that they can ride for. And so there's products that folks are developing on that path. And I, I think that's a good short-term strategy, but I think that the better long-term strategy is to introduce products 
that speak to customers that we're not touching today. And so I think, you know, the the interjection of more electric vehicles, which we're seeing that started with e-bikes and is now transitioning into motorcycles, I think it's a great uh, talking point and a great introduction uh, piece that's been entered into our, our uh, what I would call our industry. The other piece of it is a lot of these products that are coming in are really price point based. If you look at specifically Royal Enfield, it's a great product, but it's a price point that is very attractive to somebody who wants to enter that space. If I want to go and ride, uh, you know, uh, a heavy duty dual sport bike and I want to be able to off road and ride on the road and go across country, there's a number of great bikes that are available to us through traditional manufacturers like KTM and BMW and Aprilia, but they're at price points that are at premium levels. These other brands that are starting to make waves in our industry, they're offering similar types of products at price points that someone who is new or returning to the power sports industry uh, may have not been able to do five or six years ago. And I think a lot of this has to do with the way that inventory has become more challenged. It's opened up not only dealers to keeping new and adding new brands to their floor, but it's opened up the realm of potential uh, purchases for consumers as well too. If I walk into a dealership today and they're sold out of KTMs, but you know what, they've got a gas gas or they have uh, you know, a CSC on the floor or whatever the case may be, there's an opportunity for me to ride something else uh, that I wouldn't have had before because my mind was set on getting a KTM or a BMW or Harley or whatever the number is or whatever the brand is. And, and I think uh, because of that, um, we're seeing growth across all the different verticals. The amazing thing has been the amount of demand that we've seen and that that demand has helped a lot of these emerging brands be able to secure some market share where I think there may have not been an opportunity before. In addition to that, the types of products that are being offered are brand new. You know, you've got like Segway, who's getting ready to enter the market and offer, you know, fully electric side-by-sides and ATVs. Uh, and, and I think there are folks that are very interested in that because they have maybe avoided the power sports industry because of certain things. And now this is an olive branch that extends to somebody who just may not have even thought about riding before. And I, I think that's the cool aspect of where we're sitting today is, Yes, inventory is low and things are difficult, but it's provided a lot of opportunity for some of these brands on what I would call the outskirts of the power sports industry. It's given them a seat at the table and given them customers that they may not have had, you know, 24 months ago. That's right. I want to thank our guest, Tony Altieri, National Power Sports Auction, creeping up on 12 years, my friend. How about that? I'm sitting here looking at your LinkedIn account. Creeping up on 12 years. I hope uh, I hope the good people over there crank out a nice watch for you or something. Uh, <laughs> Tony is speaking of a familiar song, and that song was very popular in the 60s, and it sounded a lot like Honda, Yamaha, and Kawasaki when they came in and started feeding new products into a very hungry industry. So here we are on the back end of an interesting wave. Tony, thanks very much for your perspective. Uh, we appreciate it. We appreciate your time and look forward to seeing you down the road. Thanks, Robert. Appreciate it, man. And my next guest is a friend of mine. I met this woman uh, some time ago and she had an idea and I said, that's a good idea, but we need to make it bigger. And she has taken that advice to heart and I swear everything she does gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and I'm really proud of her. My friend, Elisa Clickinger. Elisa, thank you. Hey. hey, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be on the show with you and to share tidbits of knowledge and inspiration with all riders. Well, um, you run women's motorcycle tours, but you also have women's motorcycle conference. And what I wanted to ask you about in our little round robin rapid fire show here is sort of the, the OEM support you've been seeing specific to women's riding initiatives. Um, uh, one hero of mine out there is Bree Poland with uh, uh, Royal Enfield. Uh, the build train uh, race program is fantastic. I want to build one of these bikes myself. These women have made awesome motorcycles. 
uh, and they're they're learning how to race uh, and and uh, you know the very machines that they've built. So that's definitely something to look into. Can, but but could you speak a little bit to like kind of what you've seen happening in terms of OEM support for women riding initiatives? Well, I certainly think that the OEMs have really gotten the message from the Motorcycle Industry Council. I know they mentioned it many years ago. And uh, now with the numbers, we're, we're really seeing the support from the OEs for lots of different projects and lots of really innovative ones. Um, like you mentioned, Royal Enfield's BTR program, really great. Um, uh, Polaris Industries with their empowered sports women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, Harley-Davidson's got some great initiatives. And I'm seeing, uh, it's not my story to tell, but I'm seeing things, uh, really exciting things coming from Suzuki, Kawasaki, um, and so it's super exciting time to be in the motorcycle industry. And you've probably heard me say this before, this is, this is the best year ever to be in the motorcycle industry between the new models and you know, the excitement of the, um, of the enthusiasts. And mm -hmm. now the, it, in the women's motorcycle space, you know, the, the OEs are really getting on board and supporting more and more women's initiatives. And they're, they're really taking off. Events are filling up. Thank goodness the whole, the, the whole events industry is opening up and people are traveling. People are, you know, uh, uh, taking longer motorcycle rides. It's really, really a neat time. And your women's motorcycle conferences is one that is uh, supported by uh, Polaris and India, the Indian brands. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit about what what those women's motorcycle conferences are all about? Sure. Um, thank you for asking. They we started them in the middle of the pandemic. It was a business pivot for me, an events company. Oh my heck! What are we going to do when we you know nobody's traveling, nobody's going on tours? So we decided to continue to provide value, but in a, uh, a virtual space. And mm -hmm. Indian Polaris has been a huge supporter of that. And uh, because the virtual conferences were so successful, I've decided to bring that to live conferences. And so we're planning a live women's motorcycle festival and conference, August 19 to 22 of this year, 2021. And uh, Polaris has been a big supporter of that and uh, getting the word out and helping us get 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 rolling, providing education, inspiration con and connection for for female riders. And I also want to call out my own old friends at Polaris, um, because this is not just some dude sitting in the corner going, ah, we got to sell more bikes to chicks. Right. I mean, this these yeah. initiatives are being led by women. So why don't you call out the managers that you've been working with directly? Uh, well, Joey Lindahl is amazing to work Yay, with, and, <laughs> and she's my she's my she's my direct uh, contact for, at at Polaris. Yeah, and I know she works with Pam Kermish over there, and and uh, Pam's at the vice president level, uh, yes. making critical decisions with major yes. budgets to draw new riders. And we've said for years that. Um, well, you were in the give a shift uh, uh, roundtable and coming out of that, one of the key points was, uh, you know, if mom rides, the family rides. Right. Yes. So that was that yep. was uh, one of the big points there. So it's good to see um, OEMs, uh, aftermarket brands, um, even racing uh, really dig into uh, the women's markets. I know um, at some of the show, there's been uh, women's motorcycle uh, or sorry, custom shows that. Have yes. Been supported by uh, women riders. And I know that's going to be some of the factors coming up on the IMS Outdoors Tour as well. So that kicks off in about a month. I got to pack all my socks and get ready to do that. <laughs> but, um, but you are hosting what I think is going to be one of the most important uh, motorcycle rides of 2021. And, and this is something that was a holdover from last year. I was lucky to be uh, part of the thought process of, of, of getting it going. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you and I discussed quite a bit of it. But uh, tell us about the, the suffragist centennial motorcycle ride. Yeah, well, uh, last year was uh, the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. And 
as you know, I called you up and said, am I crazy? And you're like, yes, but it's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I love a good crazy idea. (laughs) Yeah. And you've always been inspiring me to do more and more epic stuff. And, uh, and, And I'm just a big fan of big rides because I know their transformational value for the participants. And for me as an event producer, who I have to become in order to be the container for a large event like this, I learned so much about myself and about business and about my, my partners and being a valuable partner. So it's all just really great stuff. And we kick off in less than 60 days, July 31st, the ladies gather in Portland, Oregon. And uh, we, the next day we head out towards our final destination, Arlington, Virginia, where the whole Suffragist Centennial Motorcycle Ride culminates in uh, at the Women's Motorcycle Festival and Conference. And I have a lot of really exciting things happening uh, on the Centennial Ride. We've got some really neat partners. We've been announcing them, you know, week after week, uh, uh, including our uh, event charity, any Final. scoops? Do you have a scoop for us? <laughs> I have an almost scoop. I can tell you that we have rearranged our routing to go through Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. And we are offering something unheard of, super exciting from Milwaukee to Arlington. So I can't wait until I can make that announcement. That is the home of, of two OEMs, both Royal yes. Enfield and uh, some guys who started a little company up in the shed. So that's that's really interesting. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. Congratulations yeah. on that. Thank you. And and circling back to Brianne Poland and Royal Enfield, um, Brianne is so one of the components of the Women's Motorcycle Festival and Conference is that uh, we have, uh, with the support of the Motorcycle Industry Council, I am offering a Women in Power Sports Professional Development Day. So Thursday, uh, August 19th, ladies from the power sports industry can come in and uh, be treated to breakfast. And I've got three different presenters, and one of them is Brianne Poland. I think she's had an amazing career. She's got really innovative ideas and i interviewed her for dealer news a while back and i was just so floored at her attitude I, I, and 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 what she's doing she at the time she was managing two positions mm-hmm. uh, at, at royal enfield she was going to school full-time and traveling tons and getting married i i just I, I i don't know how she found the finds the time to do what she does but she takes it all in stride and she's a true inspiration and so that's why I invited her to be one of the uh, one of the presenters there. So that's going to be a lot of fun. We're just getting the word out to women in power sports for to come join us for that. And we're also offering dealers the opportunity to live stream the conference portion, the general session on Friday, August twentieth. Uh, to we're we're offering this event in a box. A package for dealerships who want to bring more women through their doors. And so we've got the, the live streaming on Friday, and then we have a complete plan for lead rides and building your motorcycle, your female motorcycling community at your dealerships on Saturday. And that information went out in dealer news, I think the last issue. So they can, dealers can look to that if they want to bring more women in their doors. I think women are the key to the future. Like you started out saying, if the moms ride, we all ride. And uh, we're seeing it. We're, you know, we're seeing that slowly turning the industry around and getting more people riding. Well, that's the goal. Get more people riding, get more motorcycles sold out there, continue to grow this community. And if any of you out there, especially on the OEM uh, major aftermarket level, um, or the dealer level want to get in touch. Um, why don't you give us your uh, your website and contact information? Because I'm telling you, folks out there, I'm not blowing smoke. This woman has got her um, finger on an email list of uh, committed female motorcycle riders that absolutely will be the biggest influencers in motorcycling. And all you got to do is. A little bit of support goes a long way. So uh, tell us how folks can get in touch with you. Well, my website is womensmotorcycletours.com. 
and my email is alisa a-l-i-s-a at womensmotorcycletours.com and if you want to sign up for my newsletter there's a pop-up there on the website the event site for the suffragist ride is www.centennialride.com and there's contact information on there as well and i'm really here to support dealers riders and get more women into motorcycling ladies and gentlemen that is the voice of one of the most influential female motorcyclists in america possibly in the world um elisa clickinger thank you so much for spending a little time on our uh, wrap-up episode here um, I so look forward to seeing you guys as you cross the country, uh, and uh, I wish you the best and encourage everyone to sign up for your uh, email list. Uh, she sends out fantastic uh, content, but doesn't flood your inbox, so nice balance there. <laughs> Congratulations, you nailed it. Yeah. So thanks again, Elisa Thank Clickinger, for joining us. Thank you, Robert. Next up, Wendy Crockett from the Women's Coalition of Motorcyclists. That's WCM2020.org for those of you who are uh, ADD and need to do two things at one time. Wendy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me back. Uh, talk a little bit about WCM. You guys are important in uh, in what you do and getting uh, you know different clubs together and communicating with a broad base of people. But you guys are still deep in the middle of gathering information on female riders out there and that's not something that you're just planning on keeping to yourself that's something that you want to distribute can you talk a little bit about that program correct yeah we really feel like um it's been important and kind of lacking in the industry to take the experience of all women riders and that's a really broad category um and we all kind of have um, these experiences within the industry as riders, uh, trying to find gear, trying to find bikes that fit. And we want to take those stories and coalesce them into useful, quantifiable information that we can bring to the industry and say, this is your fastest growing market segment, and mm -hmm. this is what they want from you. So we've so, released two of our um surveys so far and we have another two in the works but there's so much information uh, out there the more we work um with women and um, we bring in women with different specialties to consult mm -hmm. on these um there's so much to be gleaned so i think this this project is definitely going to keep growing as well and I think that that's, you know, I was involved on the OEM side for a while and 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 I got to go into a few of the sort of consumer roundtables. What do you think of this motorcycle and, you know, sort of the uh, the one way glass scenarios and stuff like that. But I think that this kind of cultural development is really critical for the industry to understand. So asking a pointed question here, have you do you feel like you've had success in OEMs and the aftermarket digesting this information or have you just laid out a buffet and everyone's just staring through the sneeze guard and not not picking anything up we haven't gotten quite to that point yet we our first survey has been out um i want to say about six months off the top of my head mm -hmm. uh so we're just getting to the point we've got a lot of of um good responses to that and we're just starting to really crunch the data uh, and then looking forward to our next three surveys, how we're going to um, bring the information from all four surveys together to be able to present it. So we, we haven't gotten to the point of um, bringing it to the industry just yet. We, it's still very much a work in progress. All so right, but that's but that's something that's going to be available for OEMs, for aftermarket, for maybe dealers. I mean, what what correct. what's the what's the audience? Is everybody? Is that correct? Uh, the the audience is everybody. The information is uh, going to be available to anybody that's interested. But our target audience would be the industry. It would be 
uh, dealerships and dealership operations and uh, manufacturers um, of both bikes and safety gear. And um, we want to be able to present um, very solid information to, to be able to correlate. You know, there's women of, of all ages and all riding experience, riding all different kinds of bikes and all different kinds of body shape. So it's, it's difficult to have just a very small, concise um, mm -hmm. bit of information, but we're hoping to uh, bring together a broader view that um, the manufacturers can look at and say, okay, if we focus on this section, we are going to be appealing to a wide array of these women riders that we want to draw into the community. We want to remove those stumbling blocks that are either preventing them from becoming riders or preventing them from being as avid a rider as they would like to be or we would like them to be um, and really grow that market segment. The old, uh, the old um, kind of pejorative for for doing that in a lazy way was to shrink it and pink it. Mm -hmm. And exactly. uh, and the one of the things that I've seen as I've, I've worked in the industry, and and this is not necessarily a knock on these departments, but industrial design is something that is oftentimes led by men uh, with a base of assumptions. So um, unless those assumptions are challenged, then certain design choices are made that may end up making a motorcycle less comfortable for a woman to ride. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, or uh, to put it another way, uh, that once this data is received, it could actually really inform and become a really positive challenge for a designer to create something that will help expand uh, the opportunity for women motorcyclists out there. So, so how would somebody who's in charge of an industrial design department or apparel design or a categorical marketing for like an insurance company or something like that? How, uh, how is there a subscriber list where they can uh, sign up and, and get in touch with you guys? Um, at this point, no, we just have people contacting us directly and quite a number of people have that are interested in, in this data. And um, so they can, anybody that's interested can just go to WCM2020.org, um, drop us a line and um, we'll keep a list going um, when the time comes to disseminate this information that we'll be able to, to reach out to people that have expressed interest. Yeah, and I guarantee you, if you're sitting there listening to this program and you're you're uh, sitting back in your seat going like, oh, I don't think I'm going to need that information. Well, your competition's going to get it. So, mm -hmm. uh, so it's time to step up and do that. Speaking of competition, we're going to switch over from your industry work behind a desk and a computer screen um, to what you do as an avocation, and that is you are an iron butt champion. Is that right? That is right. How about that? And it's about to kick off in a week. You're going to be relatively unreachable somewhere in the Netherlands of America. So Iron Butt, for the three of you who don't know, is uh, 11 days, 13,000 miles. Um, and you, Wendy, have competed more than any other woman in that competition. Correct. I think this is going to be my sixth year. <laughs> That's it, that we're giving we're giving you guys moto trivia out there. This is something that you're going to crush it at the next moto trivia game. So, uh, <laughs> Wendy, give us a, an an overview of that. I mean, to to the point we understand, you know, largely that that you're you have to train for this. This isn't something you can just go gas up a bike and go. You have to think about it. There's a lot of planning and work that goes into this. But as a female competitor, when you roll up to, um, well, it's not, not going to be a border check station this year because you're not going up into Canada. But, but when you pull your helmet off at a gas stop or, or, or something like that, what, are you still getting like surprise reactions or is it, is it starting to become more normal? Well, I'm going to say, you know, as we were talking about a minute ago, women are the fastest growing market segment. So I think it's it's not as unusual anymore for people to see women on bikes. And frankly, if I'm pulling up to a gas stop, if I'm, you know, stopping for a bonus, 
unless I absolutely have to, I stay fully geared up. But I, I did have a funny story that I loved from the last rally that I had to get a bonus at the top of Mount Washington. And this is a, you know, a long, tight, twisty road to the top of the mountain. And then I had to get off and, and hike a bit to get what I needed. So the so, but the bonus you're you're for, for referring to is bonus points. Like if you correct. if you outside of the normal the normal quote unquote thirteen thousand mile loop, here's here's this extra trek of several hundred miles, right? Right. So there's not there's not a base loop. You know they say eleven days, eleven thousand miles, but um, it's it's possible to finish the rally successfully at you say eight thousand miles. Um, mm -hmm. just with a minimum amount of points, but you get points by visiting um, these locations above you and beyond. You don't for doing a minimal amount of work, do you? Correct. So <laughs> I happened to do 13,000 miles last go around, and then Mount Washington at the, the very top was one of the bonuses that I had to get. So I, I get to the top, I rip off my gear, run up to get the photograph that I need to get these points, and I, I come back to my bike and I hear this, woman say you know kind of in a, a loud whisper to her husband oh my god that was a girl so i have <laughs> i i have no idea if it was my spirited writing that caught their attention or just that they didn't expect to see um you know women on big sport touring bikes are less common uh than say on a harley or something like that so i have no idea what precipitated it but it just it cracked me up for the rest of the ride to the the finish line. Oh my, my God, my, that was a girl. My, uh, my, my imagination, uh, uh, sees you kind of, uh, let's say, uh, passing those folks and actually <laughs> sucking some of the bugs off of their windscreen. That's, <laughs> that's, that's the way I see, uh, see that going um but it, it uh, was probably something very similar to that time time was tight <laughs> time is tight uh one of the wonder women of our industry thanks so much for joining us on this uh on our our, our wrap up here on uh season two uh wendy i wish you all the luck in the world um this year is going to be different can you tell us quickly like how iron butt is going to be different this year than in prior years and maybe what you expect how you know how you you see that being being different versus maybe once borders open up again yeah that's it is you know typically alaska canada your big point bonuses are going to be up north because um uh, the border crossings are difficult and time consuming and hard to gauge accurately and so you know the tougher it is to get to a location um, the more valuable the points are. So with the Canadian border closed, everything's going to be in the lower 48. So I think that's really going to change the game. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how they lay it out. But I think um, as far as exactly how the puzzle is going to be this year, um, I think one of, one of the greatest detriments to riders is spending too much time trying to guess what the rally master has in store for you because i guarantee it's going to be something completely left field <laughs> beyond what you've spent all your time worrying about so i'm well they've had a whole year to be creative knowing that there was going to be this limitation so precisely uh, going to be exciting to to pay attention to that i hope we can have you back on in season three and 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 talk about your ride uh, this year and, um, you know, and, and your results. Uh, we wish you the, the best of success um, here on Center Stand. Thank you very much. Wendy Crockett uh, from the Women's Coalition of Motorcyclists, an iron butt competitor and champion, um, a woman who is just as comfortable crunching data as she is crunching miles. So uh, thanks for joining us, Wendy, and uh, we'll see you down the road soon. And by the way, if any of you out there are hanging out at a gas station and somebody comes rolling up on a on a FJR or something with 13 GPS units on the front and all, they don't have time to talk. They're not being rude, but they got to get going. So take a quick picture, but just get the heck out of the way because that's Wendy Crockett making miles. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was connecting with a bunch of our friends. Got to thank uh, uh, Wendy for her time, Elisa, Tony Altieri, 
Mark Sheffield, all these people are on social media. You should be following them if you're a dealer or in the aftermarket. Uh, I tell you what, uh, what an amazing world of motorcycling we get to work in. And uh, these are absolutely some leaders in the industry. So please do follow them. Thanks for following us here on Center Stand. You can listen to all of the long form episodes and interviews with these people if you just log on to continuetheride.com. They are all housed there. Uh, you can subscribe. There's newsletter stuff. There's all sorts of great content. Uh, looking forward to being at IMS Outdoors. That's firing up soon. Season three is going to happen. And guess what? It's going to happen live at the IMS Outdoor Shows. So uh, we'll be finally face-to-face with people. No more Zoom meetings. Uh, but we will be recording those episodes for season three at IMS Outdoors. And so looking forward to bringing that content to you, our dealer friends, the aftermarket world, and all of our industry buddies. So I've uh, got one more wrap-up episode coming up, uh, and uh, I'm not going to tell you who's coming up on that one yet. No, no. we got one more quick wrap-up coming up uh, in a couple weeks, so you'll enjoy that. And uh, for now, we'll catch you later and see you down the road.